Hello, everyone, and welcome to Side Dish, an IFT podcast that mixes up our perspectives from multiple disciplines related to the science of food and developing a career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkham. At a time when many companies are looking for a competitive advantage, sensory scientists can provide a critical voice to be integrated as part of the conversation about our product success. Sensory evaluation can be an indispensable tool to help predict product success if and when implemented appropriately. This edition of IFT Side Dish podcast will help sensory and other food professionals better position themselves to contribute to product success while participating as members of cross-functional teams. Today, I'm joined by two expert panelists who will share their success stories and identify strategies to stay relevant in this fast-paced and ever-evolving marketplace. In addition, we will be discussing general strategies to communicate the value of sensory science and identify innovative trends that are helping organizations to succeed. Our two guests today are Chow Ming Li, who's currently the global sensory lead with Bayer Crop Science, and Cindy Ward, who's the owner and principal of Sensation Research. So can I please ask both of you to tell us a little bit about your background and experience in sensory science? So Chow Ming, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background in sensory science? Sure, Bruce. I'm one of the lucky sensory scientists who fell in love with the science early in our careers. Uh, I had a major professor who was a sensory professor. I went on to more sensory degrees and so on and studies. And before I joined the industry about 15 years ago, um, my experience are mainly consumer and analytical sensory. So that includes areas of uh, relating sensations and liking to instruments. Uh, I also been uh, involved with mostly produce and natural products. So uh, things that are actually more challenging to test and it just makes uh, sensory so much more flavorful and fun. To work with. That's fantastic, Chow. I mean, that's really good. I'm looking forward to uh, picking your brains a little bit about all that experience. So, Cindy, you want to tell us a little bit about your background? I started, I guess I got my PhD at University of Georgia and was working in sensory and consumer science from the very beginning there. And I've, unlike uh, Chow Ming, I've mainly focused on packaged goods, so more of uh, helping product developers to optimize products for the grocery store. Um, so I started off my career at Jividon and uh, I was the global head of sensory and consumer research there. Then I moved on to a market research firm and now I own my own business for the last 12 years and doing similar work uh, the entire time. I'm also in love with sensory and product development, so I guess that's, that's helpful. So that, that's excellent. So clearly we have some uh, very deeply experienced guests today and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So we know that sensory evaluation can be a really powerful tool to help measure and predict our consumer responses to food and beverage products. And while keeping confidentiality in mind, are you guys able to share with us any success stories of how sensory evaluation helped an organization that you were involved with make a successful decision. Cindy, how about you lead us off this time? Well, I've been working um, kind of in the, the area where we put sensory and consumer research together for a very long time. And so 
by using sensory work and consumer together, you can kind of figure out what's driving liking. So I have a lot of case studies that I've worked there where I've uh, helped to understand the market for products and how to create uh, maps for product developers to create better products. So I have some many examples of that, but one might be, um, I'm sort of uh, hiding the exact product so that we can talk about it. But for example, we'll think about like trying to optimize a packaged fake product. Let's just say vanilla cake or something. So in this, in this study, what we did was we, first we started with trying to understand what the product developer wanted to accomplish or what's the team, what are the team's goals. And then we also were in that cross-functional team. Um, there's also market research people, um, as well as product development people and other scientists. And so what we did was we started by understanding the marketplace for those products and picking out products that were uh, gold standard leaders in the marketplace, um, looking for niche brands for new things that might be coming up, and then also product developers develop prototypes. And then what we did was we put those products in front of focus groups to figure out um, things like, well, what problems do consumers have with these types of products? Do they have any baking issues? How do they use them? Are some of these brands for themselves and some of these brands for, for others? Like, what do they bring to a bake sale? Um, how would they use that? Uh, do they add anything to those products? How do they use frosting and so on? Um, and then we designed a study, online study, to get statistically valid data on um, what the consumer's interests were for specific brands and in, in new ingredients that might go into those products and new ways of using those products. Uh, at the same time, then we were doing descriptive analysis to understand the marketplace of what the current products delivered, um, flavor, taste, texture-wise, how those products were different, and where there might be some green space or open space for new places for products to be developed into. Um, then we selected some products that went into consumer studies. And the consumer studies, this would be with consumers actually tasting products. And we used that to figure out which products were liked, how much were they liked, what uh, parts of the attributes of the product were good and bad. For example, is it too sweet? Is it too bitter? You know, is it is it too dense? And so on. Um, by linking that that type of work together with the descriptive maps, then we're able to create models or statistical models to figure out what's driving and taking away from liking for the products. And then we can create a um, set of optimal profiles based on all that data um, to give to product developers to go ahead and create new products or enhance the products they already have to make them even better. So what part of the product that they might already have is not quite optimized, what would they have to do to increase the liking of that product? Do they need it to be sweeter? Is it too sweet? Um, is the texture too dense? Is it too light? And so on. Um, and then we were able to, with the client that I was working with, what they did was they were able to maintain their market leadership position in some of their more indulgent products. And they had another line that was uh, less indulgent, um, that was uh, more of a store type brand. And how what they should do to that product to make it even better, but still keep the uniqueness of their um, market leading brand. So there was lots of good examples and they, and this type of work when it's designed right uh, is not, the nice thing about it is it's not um, valuable just for a few products that you may have tested, but it can 
be valuable for the category for a long period of time. So it has a lot more um, stability in um, what consumers like because it's not, it's a designed experiment. So it's not like that, it's just the fewer four, three or four products that might be in a consumer test, but actually understanding like a whole product category, which allows uh, product developers to keep returning to that information um, over a course of years. I've even seen it be valuable for five to seven, 10 years. So it gives them like in-depth knowledge on the category. Um, the work can be very, uh, very um, technical. So it's really important the product team works closely together so that the understandings of the information are clear. So that's, that's one big example of the type of work I do. Very interesting. So Cindy, you mentioned that the, in the early part of that, you mentioned that you put together maps for product development uh, to use. So can I, can I ask you to, to describe what a product development map that's coming from a sensory research perspective, what it actually looks like and how it, how it manifests? Can you help us with that? Sure. Um, there's two ways of doing mapping when I think about it. The, the main way is looking at something called a principal component analysis map, which kind of lets you look at like the whole universe of the products that you've tested and then you can decide what's the, you can find out what's the um, differentiating characteristics of a specific product. Um, how does that product relate to other products on the map? So if the products are closely uh, plotted next to each other, they're very similar. Um, products that are very far away from each other are very different. And then um, not only are the products plotted on there, but the attributes related to those products are plotted on there. Um, so you can see like how do attributes, how, what attributes are higher and lower in specific products. And by making that kind of map, you can also see if there's a density of products um, in one area, that's a product where a lot of, there's a lot of overlap, for example. Um, it might be very easy for consumers to just switch products in the marketplace. So maybe another brand is very similar. So that that's kind of that's a place that there's probably a lot of liking for that product, but there's a lot of overlap. So that means that it's very easy to switch. Um, a gap might be in an area that consumers just haven't seen that type of product, and whether they're going to like it or not, it's unknown. So it's a place to go test and find out. Um, so that's one way of mapping. Another way of mapping is more concrete to that specific sample. So let's just say you own a market-leading product and you want to know how your product uh, is different from the other market leader. So in that kind of map, uh, that's just a sensory profile type map. And what we do is we look at every attribute and how different that, that is um, in intensity. Um, from each other's products. So those are two different ways of mapping um, that can be utilized. There's lots of other types of mapping. You can do a consumer perceptual map. So you can take all of the consumer's perceptions of the products that you've tested and break down all of their uh, ratings into a map and superimpose those with the products. So you can also see like how the product is delivering on liking, how it's delivering on uh, cakiness or uh, density, how it's delivering on uh, um, 
how sweet it is or how salty it is. And, and so you can put those things together. Um, I usually look at both the consumer perceptual maps and the descriptive perceptual maps and, and kind of find, figure out how those products are being um, perceived by both the analytical sensory and the consumer type sensory work, but then also do the modeling to figure out what's driving liking. So I put all that together. Right. So you basically are overlaying the two maps against each other. Yeah. Statistically, you put them together actually in the same map. Um, it's called a drivers of liking. I use partial least squares regression, but there's many other different types of modeling to do um, so that you can statistically determine what is related to increasing or decreasing liking for a consumer's uh, product. So Very interesting. Thank you, Cindy. So, so Chow Ming, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit about one of your success stories and help uh, a business that you've worked with? Yes. Um, so for the last 10 years, uh, we've been trying to understand what drives consumer preference in uh, tomatoes. Tomatoes is a produce and it's very challenging to test with. It's highly variable and we have different categories of tomatoes to, to focus on and do the same thing like Cindy mentioned. We have to do the the, the modeling, the understanding of a relationship between uh, preference, uh, the consumer hedonic liking, and the analytical measurement, and also with the train panel. So all three, we have to come together, and then we have to come up with models, and more specifically, equations, where you can use the machine, the instruments, to predict a certain perception, or even uh, more successfully, uh, consumer liking. Fantastic. These are great stories to illustrate how sensory evaluation can, is really adding value. So, um, However, we know that sensory evaluation has also has some limitations and, and it gets a lot of criticism. And these are particularly important to keep in mind when the resources to run the tests are limited and, and we've all got limited resources these days. So, so I think we need to, to have a think about uh, and maybe talk about the elements of this uh, sensory research where where we've got limitations. So, so what are the biggest criticisms and misunderstandings or even challenges with sensory evaluation by either the sensory professionals or your stakeholders? And, and tell me a little bit about how you've been able to address them. So Chiaoming, can you help us with the challenges that you've seen and how you've addressed those challenges? So to set the tone, uh, I must emphasize that I deal with uh, the whole company from R&D up to uh, product developer to sales to marketing and so on. So my, my responsibility and relationship is very wide. So outside R&D, the biggest criticism, and I run into this sometimes, is um, you, you're too scientific, you're too rigid, you have too many uh, designs and, and, and protocols to get it right. And, and it takes some convincing because um, in the produce industry, sensory is not as well developed, developed. and therefore people it's, it's something that's strange. So it takes more convincing, it takes more time, and you need to show them what is the end outcome. A lot of times before we even finish or start the project, uh, I will already have a, a dummy uh, outcome for them to see and have to explain to them what are the fundamentals and so on. So it had all starts with the fundamental. And finally, of course, you got to build a relationship. And in the produce industry of tomato, for example, it takes about 10 years to develop the next variety of tomato. And 10 years is a long time. 
So you got to build all the relationship, maintain the relationship for a long time, and then you can convince them that sensory is the right way to go and testing with uh, good and getting good data of sensory is very, very critical and helping them, uh, that will help them with their uh, product development. So, so what I, one of the things I really heard there was that building really strong relationships with all your stakeholders helps to overcome this challenge of being criticized for being too rigid and having too many protocols. I mean, when, when people really understand where you're coming from, that that can help a lot. Is, is that a reasonable representation? Yes, yes, the relationship matters. And, and we have we have stringent uh, protocol to do certain things, but you, you also have to be flexible in certain situations whereby can we relax this a bit? Uh, we cannot have the optimal solution. Can we have a slightly less optimal solution? It's a, it's a great piece of learning there, isn't it? The, the, our relationships as, uh, with others uh, as scientists and so that they trust us and, and, uh, um, and therefore uh, that trust helps to, to, to build that confidence that we are actually doing the right thing, even though that they, they have some, um, some, some concerns about uh, the, 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 the way we've mm -hmm. approached it. Yeah. So, Cindy, tell me a little bit about how you've gone about addressing some of these criticisms or misunderstandings. I, I first of all, I can't agree with Chowming more. I mean, you have to develop those relationships to get anything done. Sensory doesn't create any products. They just help products be made. So if you can't work with a team, then you're in a very difficult place. So um, I would say that I agree that we have to go and reach out to our internal clients, whoever they might be, often their product development for me um, or other sensory people. And you need to first start with listening, like what are they trying to accomplish? Because a lot of sensory is custom designed in my work um, to get data to help them achieve whatever their goal is. So if you don't really understand what the goal is, then you have some difficulty to start with. Um, the next thing I would say is I agree with showing them past research that might be somewhat similar so they can see what they're going to be getting out of it. Um, but after you've actually uh, designed the experiment and telling them what they're going to get out of it, and we all agree that this is what they need, you can't just send a uh, report out and not you know, walk the team through what, what the findings were. I think that you have to build that bridge, but you also have to kind of handhold the people who have to use your research because if they just get this report and they, maybe they're uh, nervous about asking a question or they're busy or whatever, if you don't actually go ahead and um, walk them through it, they may not understand what to do with it. It just becomes a pile of numbers that they got on their work again, and now what do I do? So I think that it's very important. Um, the communication part of it is critical. It's not just the science part of it. So, so really interesting. I heard you say that you've got to really be clear about what you're solving for, and, and then you've really got to be clear about uh, what they're getting out of it, which brought me back to you know some of the experiences that I've had, which is... Uh, you, you often see that sensory testing is seen by the rest of the organization as a little bit of a black box that, that they don't really understand. And, and it seems like others might not understand the a, your choice of methodology and then they really struggle how to uh, best interpret the results that you're generating. 
So can you give me some examples, Cindy, in, of in, in, in your work of how you've been able to uh, overcome that kind of view around the black box and, and bring your stakeholders with you in your area of test designs and results interpretations? Sure. Uh, one thing I've done is you can invite product developers into your descriptive panel so they can see how you're breaking a product apart. Um, you can also solicit uh, guidance from them on maybe you're looking for a specific attribute. Um, often they might have a chemical in there with, with what they work with. Maybe the specific vanilla note has a, has like a, floral type note to that and they may help be able to help you find that. Um, showing them the language you're going to use um, and, and uh, the definitions that are used there, but having them actually sit there and listen to this descriptive panel and evaluate products with them is very valuable. And I've had multiple product developers, flavorists and so on come into the panel so they can really understand the type of work that they're going to get out of the panel and how the panel is actually breaking products down. Um, I think that's been extremely valuable. So you, you solicit them to be part of the research um, in the way it's being made up. I think that helps a lot. The other thing I do is when I'm going through data, I bring those products back and I bring the attributes back. And when we're talking about the, um, what their findings were, we bring those back out so they can actually evaluate um, sort of like in a workshop format about what this data meant. And that's also really helpful when you're bringing back the consumer work. The, if you've done that drivers of liking type of work, you can show them actually what attributes are driving and what attributes are taking away from liking. Really interesting. You, you know, one of the ways to break down barriers that you highlighted there was uh, involving people and inviting people into the process so they become involved in the process. And that way that you, you've removed the, uh, the walls around the black box. I think that's a, a really insightful way to, uh, to go about that process. Um, so tell me, tell me, have you run across this challenge of other people, your stakeholders, looking at you as a little bit of a black box and not understanding your uh, your research design and your results interpretation? I often engage my stakeholders uh, in terms of designing the experiment. So it, it's for produce, we get more time. A lot of times we have like maybe six months or seven months to plan out a project. And that, is, that could be very helpful because um, we can have time designing together and see well, this is what you want to get out of the story. This is the design element that you need to have and this is the analysis and so on. So my, the other thing I take pride in is uh, like Cindy said, it's not the numbers that we are providing back to the stakeholders. It is the insights, we, whatever we can create that they understand and they can take to the next step that matters. So I will never, never give them numbers, <laughs> never. It's always something that they can digest and they can share easily uh, and they can help you to be your messenger uh, and, and that will help promote sensory. I mean, that's, a, that's amazing that you've come up with this, this concept that it's not about the numbers, it's about the insights. Uh, I mean, I think that is incredibly powerful because it's the insights that are going to move the business and the brand forward rather than a number. Uh, so, so moving you away from numbers and moving to insights, that's a, that's a, a, a great way of looking at it. 
Um, so let's change gears a little bit and and um, and have a look at, at organisations. And I think we've all seen that over the last uh, 10 years, maybe even longer, that we've seen a massive shift in organisations from isolated, siloed departments within organisation to more cross-functional teams. And so I think the question really is how can the sensory professionals better position themselves to contribute to product success as members of these cross-functional teams? How can they become a more integrated and influential member of the team? Um, Chaoming, can you tell me a little bit about what you've done to, um, to engage within a cross-functional team environment? Yes, so I am a hybrid person working on hybrid seats. <laughs> In the, in a, I'm a, a hybrid because um, I don't just work in R&D and, and I work across many functions. And one of the ways to get across functions is knowing the organization, knowing the commercial organization versus the R&D. So I have a organization map that I keep track of that I understand who is who, who has moved on. And in our business, there has been a lot of changes in the last 10 years. And I have to keep updating all those relationship, need to know who is working before and give them a call. If there's a new person on, on the, on the, for the position, I will connect and I say, hi, even, even though there's no sensory project, we will start connecting and building the relationship. And by having the relationship, then when it's time for a research project, we will work better together. The other thing would be to uh, connect and know where to present. Uh, sensory concepts. So even before they have a need, let the team in the country, for example, know what are the capabilities, what are the things they can do, the, the uh, extensive research they can do, or the simpler research they can do. So we communicate ahead of time and plan ahead of time so they'll be ready. So that's really interesting. You know, you help to break down silos by being you know, by building relationships and networking across the, the organization. So in, in essence, you're a, you're a wall breaker on the silos. That's, that's a really good way of approaching that, uh, that challenge. Cindy, tell me a little bit about how you've gone about the process of uh, breaking down those walls and, and um, helping to operate within uh, and be successful within a cross-functional team. Yeah, I think it's very similar to what Xiaoming says. Uh, it's about building the relationship early on so that um, it's easy to approach them and it's easy for them to approach you. Um, it, you. You have to have a kind of an informal relationship where you can just go into their office and talk to them and show them things. Um, and I think it's kind of hard for a young sensory person perhaps to, to do, to Sometimes they'll feel like uh, nervous about going and talking to a product developer who's maybe very successful. Um, but I think that they have to kind of have the courage to go ahead and do that and, and to form those relationships um, so that then when their work comes out, that, that the team can feel very comfortable in asking questions and um, whether it's maybe they're wondering where this data came from or what does this really mean or what do I do with it? Uh, as long as you have that good working relationship, it makes it a lot easier to ask those questions and kind of 
I, I'm not like Chow Ming. I never got six months to, to run a, a study. That's kind of awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, some of mine, when I was at Jupiton, we would have, we would get products in and they're like, okay, go do some sensory. I'm like, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? You know, what's the goals for the project team? Um, so it's just, you know, so you have to be, you have to be flexible. You have to be able to have the courage to go talk to other people because a lot of scientists are introverts and it is difficult to like, just go and talk to somebody instead of just shoving an email over there and, you know, there goes my report and, you know, whatever. Uh, you have to actually make that in-person or, you know, on video chat these days uh, relationship so that it's easier to, for people to understand what you need to get done because um, there's a lot of data. It, it's great if Chowming can make it like just words or something what to do, but I find most scientists actually want to see the charts and they want to see the data and they want to see the tables and they want to look at everything because they're scientists and scientists want to know everything about how everything was done. So, um, you know, it's nice to have an executive uh, summary for the people who might be higher up in the organization who just want to know the bullet points of what happened, what do we do now, and go on. But a lot of scientists really want to peruse through it. They want to question how it was done and, and so on. So I think it's important to be able to be flexible for who you're talking to. If you give all the details to uh, an executive, they're like tone out. You know, they don't know what you're saying. It's They're done. They knew that the product won or didn't win, and that's it. But the product developer wants to know why it won or why it didn't win and what to do next. So you have to be able to uh, kind of speak the right language to the right person. Um, a marketing research person may not even know you exist. Somehow they think that product development just does their work and they make a great product and that's it. And it just magically appears. Um, so you have to like, explain that there's a whole bunch of scientists and researchers that also help product development. It's not that the product just comes fully formed into the group. Um, so it, that, that doesn't necessarily happen with um, maybe food companies as much as I've seen uh, market research people come from just in the market research world over into a CPG company. And then they, they like are flabbergasted that there's a whole bunch of other scientists who work with consumers. Um, that work on product. So um, I think that, you know, being able then to convince them that you also work with consumers, but in a different way and, and how that helps um, to create uh, new products, I think. So you have to like communicate all the time. I, um, Jivanon, we always used to say, uh, you have to over communicate all the time. So you think you might be being clear, but you have to over communicate to actually uh, have people understand what you're trying to say. So very good. I mean, in, in amongst there, you talked about the concept that um, you know, and I think we've all seen it that a lot of the scientists that work in industry are somewhat introverted in nature, and that in order to to get your point across or even develop those relationships that you both talked about. The introvert sometimes needs to wear the cloak of the extrovert in order to get their message out there and make sure they're building these relationships. So that's that's really fascinating. 
I've certainly worked in organisations that have very little or no sensory um, uh, experience or, or even, even they don't even regard the uh, sensory area as a high value area. So in those sorts of organisations, you need to build the uh, credibility and the, the, of the sensory team and therefore you need to communicate in advance as to the advantages and benefits of sensory. So what additional advice would either of you give to a, a sensory scientist who needs to communicate the value of the sensory evaluation to their organization or to the clients that they happen to be working with, either internal or external? So Xiaoming, can you tell me a little bit about what you've done to build the awareness and, and the value in the minds of your um, client base uh, of the uh, sensory work. I have the opportunity to represent the company on many occasions. In fact, about 10% of my responsibility is actually corporate engagement and customer engagement. And in those kind of engagement, I will be talking to the participate the, the audience about what I do in terms of sensory and in terms of consumer testing. And at the same time, I have audience who are actually from the company and they could be high level. Uh, so the directors are there, the CEO is there, and they would listen to my, my explanation of sensory science at the same time. So that really helps. And the other thing I do is uh, we have something called Yammer, which is more like an internal Facebook kind of a, a website where you can post what has happened in your area and occasionally i post something that is serious sometimes i post something that is fun in sensory and that gets the whole company aware of what you do for the the customer for the for the research and for the even the uh, consumers sometimes we have uh, high school students or, or uh, visitors so those are really really helpful to spread the news very good. And Cindy, what sort of things have you done to help build the awareness and the value of value proposition of sensory within an organization or within a, a group of clients? Well, I used to uh, have to give presentations almost every day um, to external clients and internal clients. And I, so there was always a um, a smattering of different types of research and questions and what you might get out of those types of designs. So it was, it was a lot more of um, communicating uh, presentations and, and showing examples of past work um, of what we can do. I've done a lot of uh, presentations actually at IFT too on different bodies of research, um, which helps I think somehow to uh, kind of do a community outreach to other food scientists. Um, I've been part of um, a team on sweeteners, sweeteners for symposium for that. I think that there's just different ways to communicate and, and outreach to people. Very good. Thank you both for your very insightful comments. And, and I guess that as we close out today, what I think I'd like to do is, is ask you both what you might tell a new sensory scientist, somebody who's recently joined the field or just recently graduated, or they're about to uh, change from something they're currently doing towards sensory, what would you tell them that they should be focusing on as they start off in this area? 
So, Chiaoming, how would you say? You are a storyteller. You have to learn how to tell the story of this sensory data. And the more you can explain that in, in an easy to understand, in a visualization that they can take home and remember, the more successful you'll be. Wow, that's a that's a really powerful thing to tell somebody that they're a storyteller and they've, they've got to make the data talk for the, for them. That's that's really really cool. Sydney, what what about you? What can you add to uh, somebody that might be thinking about uh, moving into sensory as a career as to what they might need to do to to, uh, to start off? Now, I think that probably just like along what we've been talking about all day, that you have to have the courage to outreach to your fellow scientists and to be a team member um, and that knowing that you have to listen, you have to listen to what they need, you have to design the work so that it accomplishes what they need and um, then you have to communicate it afterwards. And that takes a lot of courage, especially for young people to feel um, secure in what they have to talk about. but. Uh, I think that, you know, you just are going to have to have the courage to start. I remember being a young sensory person and going into a flavor house, which had no sensory whatsoever. And, you know, the flavorist always designed everything based on like GCs or other analytical measures. And, and you can put sensory together with analytical measures, too. But um, they just didn't know what to do with it. So if I hadn't had the courage to keep up and keep walking up to people who were way more senior in their career, um, I wouldn't have been nearly as successful. You just, you have to be able to do it. You have to get there and do it. Find yourself some good mentors. They're, they're, the sensory community as a whole is, is very embracing and um, you can learn from other people um, who you meet at symposiums, um, that you meet at ASTM, um, find yourself a good mentor. Maybe your boss is a good mentor. Maybe another scientist is. Um, but, you know, learn and you will be able to communicate better. Excellent advice. And uh, I particularly like the advice of um, seeking yourself out a mentor. And uh, at that point, you, I think we all have to give a little bit of a plug for the, uh, uh, for the, uh, the IFT network that allows uh, mentorship relationships to be established. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I'd like to take this opportunity to say thank you to our two wonderful guests today, Cindy Ward from Sensation Research and Ming Lee from Bayer. We really appreciate your time and thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. And thank you to our listeners. If you're enjoying SciDish, Please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us at uh, IFT on Twitter and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn. For more on the subject of sensory, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in sensory in the search box to gain access to a ton of resources. So SciDish is a production that's brought to you through the wonderful work of the staff at IFT. And I'd also like to thank them for everything they're doing behind the scenes to make IFT of value for all of its members. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin, and I look forward to having you as a listener on future editions of IFT SciDish. 
Thanks for listening.